All right, I'm turning once again back to Job, Job chapter number one, and we'll be looking tonight primarily at verses 21 and 22. Again, back to Job chapter one, verses 21 and 22. And it says there, and said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. The afflictions and what I would refer to as the patience of Job are set before us tonight as an example. There probably has rarely been an example like his set before us with seemingly so much going wrong. Job was greatly troubled. Uh, Job has experienced trouble like many other men have never experienced. In the account of the book of Job, and we're just looking at the first chapter and really just a small part of this, but throughout the entire book of Job, we see he literally lost everything. Everything, worldly speaking, he lost His afflictions, were taught throughout Job, were not as a consequence or a result of a particular sin, but were rather for the trial of his faith. In many ways, our humanity can deal with the first half of it. We can deal with the reality of suffering as a consequence of our sin, and we can begin to try to comprehend why this many bad things would happen to us if we knew that we were responsible for sinning and it's some sort of punishment. The difficulty lies in the fact that this was not the result of a direct sin or a particular sin, but God allowing Job's faith to be tried. Therein is what scares many of us as believers. Because here is a man who is called by the Lord and is called by God Himself an upright man, perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. We would say this man is described as the picture of what a follower or a believer of God ought to be. God is represented throughout the book of Job as glorying in Job, even glorying in the afflictions that Job is going through. And Satan, of course, in the first chapter, alleges that the only reason that Job is faithful, the only reason that Job is a perfect and upright man is because of your protection, his own self-interest, if you would. And we see the account and we realize that in verse number eight, the Lord speaking to Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Satan answered the Lord, and we remember, and doth Job fear God for naught. And he begins to almost accuse God. Paraphrasing verse 10, he says, Is it not true that you have put a hedge around him? That you've put a hedge around his house? That you have protected him on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands. You have given him substance. You've given him possessions. You've given him family. You've given him everything. And the accusation of Job is, is that God, if you put your hand on him, 
and you take away everything he has, the end result will be that Job will curse you and he'll turn from you. And the Lord does what we would not expect him to do. He grants the request to the extent that he says, Satan, behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. He says, everything he has, you have access to, but you cannot take his life. But you can take everything else. And it says, Satan goes from the presence of the Lord. The Lord consented. And we might even correct that thought and think the Lord ordained. The Lord sovereignly permitted. The subject tonight is not an easy one. It's simply submission to sovereign suffering. Submission to sovereign suffering. The trial is allowed, and we ultimately know, because we have read the book of Job, that ultimately we know how the story ends. But during the trials, and especially in Job's trials in particular, God was glorified even in Job's trials. We understand that throughout the book of Job, there are numerous conversations going on. And of course, some of the most well-known are the conversations between Job and his three friends. And his three friends from time to time do hit on some real truth. They weren't complete heretics. They weren't completely out of the realm of speaking some truth. But they were often confused, and they kept coming back to the same conclusion. That there is no way, Job, that God's going to do this and allow this to somebody unless they've really sinned against him. This kind of God just wouldn't do that. And yet Job continually responds back almost as if God has the right to do with me as he sees fit. That doesn't mean there's there's not times throughout the book of Job where Job is asking questions. I've often heard people say, Job never questioned. There are times throughout these chapters where Job is asking God questions, and before he, a lot of times before he gets the question out, he answers the question himself, and almost as if, who am I to question what he who created the universe is allowing in my life? The theme of Job is the sovereignty and the grace of God in the suffering of his servants. The theme of the book of Job is the sovereignty and grace of God in the suffering of his servants. We need to understand that there's no question that Job was a servant of God. There's no question that Job desired to follow God. Even in the beginning when we were reading, when Job went out and he made a sacrifice and gave an offering, you realize he said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. He continued to give sacrifices. He continued to give sacrifice to the Lord because he was, he was pretty certain his, his, sins were not, his sons were not perfect people and he's making sacrifices for their sins. And he's seemingly doing everything right. And we've all heard this, that, and even when we've taught our children, if you do everything right, you know, hypothetically everything should turn out okay. But Job is an example of a man who was doing everything right, and yet we see him going through the greatest trials and afflictions that mankind has ever seen. There's really three headings, and I'm going to divide these up into headings tonight, and it's mostly to help me. (laughs) Just be brutally honest, it's to help my thought process tonight, but I hope it'll help you as well. The three headings I want to deal with tonight, first of all, is the proper spirit of submission in Job. The proper spirit of submission in Job. The second heading will be the spiritual principles in Job's submission. And then thirdly, the praise of God's sovereignty. 
in Job's submission. You'll see a common theme in these three headings is the word submission. To submit, to yield to, to give unto. Submission is not because he could control it as far as what God was going to do, but he is submitting to the sovereignty of God. He is submitting to God's ordaining right and his his right and authority to every aspect of our lives. And God has the authority, which is the important part, to every aspect of our life because he created our life. He determines our life, the beginning and the end. But he also has control of the middle. He has control, what has been said by one preacher of old, he controls the dash between the dates on our tombstone. He's in control of that as well. And so Job, we see, is a man who had a proper spirit of submission. We know that Job, from a world perspective, verse 3 tells us that Job was a man of great wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth in the world. There's nothing wrong with riches. The Bible just warns us about the love of money. Riches and being wealthy is not sin. But Job was a wealthy man, and suddenly he becomes a man of complete poverty. He loses his riches. Verses 14 and 17 show us that as they're plowing in the fields, the Sabaeans fall upon him. They take everything away. And you read all the way down through verse 17, and one thing after another, everything he owns is swept away. One day, everything is normal, and suddenly now, normalcy's gone. We were talking recently about how thankful we are for normalcy in our life because normalcy is the thing that we all look forward to. You don't realize how much you love your normal until it's disrupted. When your normal is disrupted, you realize, I just want my normal back. I want my daily routine. I, as hard as it is, Job loses everything. We also understand that Job was a man of family. He was a family man. Verse 2 tells us they were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. He has 10 children. He is a man with a family. Verses 18 and 19 of this of chapter 1 tell us that his sons and daughters were killed in a storm. All at once he's lost everything. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his family. And we read over in Job chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. His wife even says, Curse God and die. He loses his wealth. He loses his crops, he loses his family, he loses his wife. This is all happening in moments. We also are told about Job, and we don't really see this until we get to Job 19, but Job was a man of great influence. If you want to turn over to Job 19, Job had a great influence among the people in which he lived. And he says in Job 19 verse 13, He says, he hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintances are very, verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed, 
My familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwelt in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I called my servant and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. Yea, young children despise me. I arose and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me and they whom I loved are turned against me. Job loses his influence. He loses his friends. He loses his family. Suddenly now, he becomes the laughingstock of the entire city. He is now, instead of a man of great influence and a man of great power and wealth, now he is the laughingstock of society. We also know that Job, prior to this affliction, was a man of strength and health. Job 2, verses 7 and 8 says, Behold, I cry out, or back to Job 2, rather, in verse, uh, let's look at uh, 7 and 8. Job 2, 7 and 8. He says, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal. And he sat down among the ashes. And it was at that moment his wife says, Can you possibly still want anything to do with God. He's covered in boils. He's lost his strength. He's lost his health. Verse 12 said this was so bad. In Job 2 verse 12, and when they lifted up their eyes afar off, they knew him not. They lifted up their voice and wept and they rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads towards heaven. He looked so terrible that even people didn't recognize him. This man has suffered great affliction. A couple observations I want you to notice about Job, and I noticed this almost right away looking through just the first chapter. Job did not attempt to hide his sorrow. You don't find Job trying to hide it. You don't find Job trying to say, I don't want anybody to know about this. His sorrow is known. He, we see throughout the book, he weeps before God. Folks, listen, the people of God, and I am finding this out more and more, and I don't, know, I don't understand it all, but I'm finding myself, the longer I've been in the faith and the longer that the Lord has been my rock, that I am becoming, and I hope this happens to all of us, that we become people with tenderness and people with feelings. And when, when these things happen to us, there is a tenderness about us and that we, we don't try to hide sorrow. Job doesn't try to hide it. He simply acknowledges that he is in the throes of a very sorrowful time. It goes back to even what we read in the Old Testament and even in Jeremiah about God taking away that heart of stone and giving us that tender heart. And as Paul wrote in his epistles, we do sorrow, but we do not sorrow as those who do not have hope. We're going to have sorrowful times, but we have hope. What Job was dealing with was sorrow, but he's also demonstrating that he had hope. So first of all, he did not try to hide his sorrow. 
The most remarkable thing, I think, of the two, the two things I'm going to note here under this first heading of the proper spirit is that Job's sorrow was marked by worship. Verse 20 says, After all this happened, Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Now the renting of the mantle, the shaving of the head, these were signs of grief. Make no mistake about it, Job is grieving. It is a terrible thing for someone to say, you shouldn't grieve. Grief is a God-given emotion and it is a necessary emotion. God grants it. God gives it. But notice that he didn't just grieve, he worshiped. This act of worship is the picture of submission. You realize true worship of God is a submissive spirit. Now I know the modern church is trying to hijack this. They're trying to make worship all about the emotional feelings and the music getting us going and this and that. No, the proper mode of worship is submission. And that's what Job is doing. Notice when it says he falls down in worship, it doesn't say what he's doing, but it says what his attitude is. The proper spirit of submission in Job was worship. God's sovereignty does not remove, even our, even on our belief in God's sovereignty does not remove sorrow and grief from our life. We believe in the sovereignty of God and we're comforted by the sovereignty of God. But that doesn't mean that we don't have times of grief and we don't have times of sorrow. There's enough people here tonight that would say we know grief and we know sorrow repeatedly more than once. And that doesn't mean we don't trust in the sovereignty of God. See, it's Job submitting to that and realizing that even God's sovereignty... God is to be honored. Sorrow t- sorrowful times, grieving times, trouble should lead us to worship and praise God. In all of this trouble and trial and even grief, Job submitted. And you don't find Job anywhere in the book speaking in an unworthy manner against God. He doesn't dishonor God's name. He doesn't deny God. And one thing you don't ever see him do, he doesn't say... I have it so much worse than everybody else. You don't see him comparing his lot and saying, why do I have it worse than they do? He falls down and he worships. Not only in that chapter, but in Job 2 verse 10. Again, when he's speaking to his wife, he gives the answer. And he asked a question, what? And I've always read this with this was an emphatic question that he's responding back to her. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? In other words, if we receive good from the hand of God, should we also not expect that we are going to also from the same hand, we're going to receive things that are not so good, but yet God is still glorified in it? And in all this, it says, Job did not sin with his lips. Later on in Job 13, 15, we see a similar statement here. This is probably the familiar 
statement that we often hear, Job, and it's quoted in so many sermons we've heard. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. Now that word though is an interjection. It's a word. It's an exclamation mark. It's what he's saying very clearly is he may take my life, but it's not going to take my hope in him. He very well may take my life. This is an expression of extreme faith. This is an example of a man who truly is living out and believes in the God that he is being faithful to. Job expressed great faith in God. I will maintain mine own ways. Later on, we do know that Job will try to place some arguments. He'll try to defend, and he's very quickly corrected by that. Job was a human, so when you read Job questioning and asking things, I hope we're not arrogant enough to think that we wouldn't do the same thing. That we would just seemingly take it all and not question any of it. Look, in the humanity of all of us, there are times in your life that you've been through things that especially when you were going through it, you were asking those same questions. It's our humanity. But we also understand that Job fell down, he worshipped. Job, we see, as his grief and his sorrow moved him to the ground, he worshipped there. The psalmist in Psalm 62.8 makes mention of this being pressed down by grief. It's a, it's, it is, a, it is a, a beautiful expression. It says, trust in Him, a psalm of David, Psalm 6-8. Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. For the believer tonight, you have an ever-living refuge. You do not have a place. You don't, you, you don't have... Uh, uh, you're not alone God is our refuge in a time of trouble. So we see under that first heading, the proper spirit of submission in Job. The second heading, the spiritual principles in Job's submission. What are the principles we see? What are the things that are, he is acting upon? We know the sovereignty of God. We know that he understands this. But not only should times of trial be times of worship, but they should also be times of teaching and considering. When we're going through these things, and when Job was going through it, he was not just worshiping, he was also being taught, and he was considering. You realize part of godly teaching leads us to consider. Teaching that doesn't lead you to consideration is not teaching at all. When I hear the Word of God being taught, when I hear the Word of God being preached, it leads me to think and to consider and to meditate upon that which I'm hearing, right? That's what should be happening. I've mentioned to you on a number of different times that my favorite psalm in all of the psalms is Psalm 42. And Psalm 42 is David, and we find David talking to himself, reminding himself, asking himself the question, why am I cast down? Why am I without hope? And he keeps talking to himself 
Psalm 42, 5, he says, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul was cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee, he says. That's part of the consideration. A man like Job, a man was a man of faith. He was also a man that was well taught in the things of God. Folks, I cannot stress to you enough how important it is to have and to continue to have a teachable spirit. If we lose, and I'm including myself and every other believer, if we lose our teachable spirit, we are in deep trouble. There is no man, no woman on this planet who is beyond teaching. No matter how educated they are, no matter how long they've been saved, no matter how strong they think their faith is, we must have a teachable spirit. That was a principle that was alive and well in Job. He was teachable. What are the things that God had taught him that he was very familiar with as this trial came upon him? First of all, Job knew the brevity of life. What were those first few words that he said? Naked I came into the world and naked I shall return. He understood. I brought nothing into this world and I'm taking nothing out of this world. He knew that the idea of life, it was brief. And as the Bible describes it, it was like a vapor. Job uses a couple of illustrations of how he viewed life in Job 14. If you want to turn there, the first five verses. Here's how Job describes life. Verse 1 is very familiar. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. What did he know about, what did he know about man? Every single person who's ever been born has a few days and they're full of trouble. You have few days and you are full of trouble. Job knew that. He cometh forth like a flower. And is cut down, he fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. What does a flower do? A flower buds. It comes forth, and when that flower first comes out, whether it's a tree, whether it's a, a flower in the ground, it is beautiful, and you think it's always going to be there, and the next thing you look out that window, and the flowers are gone. We have a, we have a cherry tree in our backyard that right out the kitchen window, you can see this, and when it started blooming, it's the most beautiful tree you've ever seen. The flowers start coming out, pink flowers are there, and then you look out one day, and those pink flowers aren't there anymore. That's what he means by this description of Man comes forth like a flower and is cut down. Verse 3, And dost thou open thine eyes upon such a one and bringest me into judgment with thee? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee, that thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. That question in verse 4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? It is, the, it is the question of the hour. A depraved, sinful man in his human nature can never produce a life that will please God. That's why there is a necessity of regeneration. Man cannot please God. Man's days are determined. James 4.14 compares life as a vapor. 
So not only in the times of sorrow, but at all times, we need to consider the brevity of life and find our hope and our joy in Christ alone. When Paul was writing to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, we see a New Testament example of this. Philippians 1 verse 20. Paul says this, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by my life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul understood, and then he says in verse 24, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He, he was caught between this. He says, I know you need me and I want to be with the Lord. But he says, I see now it's more needful for me to be here. So Job... First of all, those spiritual principles knew the brevity of life. Secondly, Job knew the frailty of earthly possessions. The Lord throughout the book teaches Job and all of us should learn by his example. The vanity and the frailty of what we have in our hands. Everything that you claim ownership to in this world. Everything. Whatever you own is frail and vain. In other words, it will not last. It is easily broken. It is easily removed. Actually, the things we own, if it's true what Job said about not bringing anything into the world, and even what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6-7, that we brought nothing into this world and we carry nothing out, let me ask you a question. Do we really actually own anything? I don't believe we do. I believe we're stewards. I believe whatever we have in our possession, God has given those to us to steward them faithfully. We're not owners. Earthly possessions break. They disintegrate. They dissolve. Job knew the frailty. We are born sinners. Psalm 51 and Psalm 58 teach us. But by God's grace and God's mercy through faith in Christ, we can leave this world justified, redeemed, and free from sin. We come into this world with nothing. We're going to leave nothing. We're going to leave this world with nothing. But we can leave as the redeemed. Which is interesting. Because Job makes a statement we'll look at later. And he uses the word, I know that my Redeemer lives. Christ had not yet come, and Job knew there was a Redeemer. So he knew the frailty. Third, he saw the hand of God in all things. His exact words were, the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Many people, I think, falsely read the book of Job, especially Job 1, and I think they do, and I don't know, sometimes they're not intentional, but they say things like this, Satan afflicted Job and took everything away. Satan's not the one that did the afflicting, and Satan's not the one who took it away. God was the one. He allowed, he allowed Satan to be the instrument. But understand something, Satan was only acting under the divine permission of God. Had God not granted Job permission to do that, 
Satan could not have touched him. Now we realize the implications of that, right? God allowed Satan to carry out God's trial of faith upon Job. Job saw the hand of God in all things. That's why he says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job, like every true believer, knows, and this is a principle someone taught me years ago, the Lord is the first cause of all things. I want you to remember that. The Lord is the first cause of all things. Now, that won't sit well with some other religious people. Because they'll say, that implication I just don't like. God is the cause? Well, He's the cause because He is the Creator. Satan and other secondary causes, this will help you, can only do what God is pleased to permit them to do. In other words, Satan and every other cause cannot act outside of the boundaries of what God permits them to do. We see some examples of this. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6-8. through 8. A couple, couple other Bible examples of this, these principles being exhibited in other portions of Scripture and other people. 1 Samuel 2, verses 6 through 8. Part of Hannah's prayer, which is chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, is a beautiful, beautiful portion of Scripture. And listen to, listen to what she says in beginning of verse 6. The Lord killeth and maketh alive, he bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He hath set the world upon them. And then notice verse 9. I love this verse. He will keep the feet of His saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto, king, unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Even in, Sa- even in Hannah's prayer, she's acknowledging the Lord. Acts chapter 4. This will be familiar to you. And this deals directly with the actual crucifixion of our Lord. And oftentimes we've got to be very careful about how we, we say that the, the Roman soldiers killed Him or that they caught Him. No, everything that was being done, even the betrayal of Judas towards our Lord was predetermined. Acts 4, verse 25 who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Notice that? Determine beforehand what was going to be done. Even the crucifixion of our Lord was predetermined. This wasn't God having a a failure. This wasn't God's sovereignty being removed. This was the foreordained, planned purposes of God. The Lord gives. 
You don't see Job saying, I earned these things, I deserve them. Job doesn't say, what I own is the product of my own hard work. No, he says, all that I have is the gift of God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That includes all of his possessions. That includes all of his influence. Whatever God took away, he ultimately understood this. God gave it to me in the first place. So if God gave it to me, then he has a right to take it. Now, folks, I realize we're sitting here tonight and we're, not, we are, we are thinking these things through and thinking, boy, this is This is tough. This is this tough to hear. It is. Because we understand that what happens to Job, we all have been through these periods before where we've, we've said, how did Job endure these things? Remember that Job understood all he has is a gift of God. And even in John 3 and 1 Corinthians 4, we see the principle that a man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven. That's paraphrased, but that's the essence of those verses. Everything we have physically, everything we have mentally, everything we have materially, and everything we have spiritually, including our salvation, is the gift of God. If I'm saved tonight, it's the gift of God. It's not because I'm intellectually at a place where I saved myself, I worked myself into salvation. My faith is a gift. Everything God has the right to give and to take even our repentance Romans 2 Acts 11 Ephesians 2 and Philippians 1 teach us that even our repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are gifts of God not of our own works lest any man should boast he understood that the Lord gives he understands that the Lord hath taken away Job sees the hand of God in everything that's taken he doesn't curse the Sabaeans. He doesn't curse the, the Chaldeans. He doesn't blame the wind. He doesn't blame the storm. He knew that the Lord God controlled all of those events and the Lord willed it or it never would have happened. Romans 8.28. We understand that verse. It's probably memorized in our memory banks. We oftentimes, it's a verse that gets quoted and misused out of context. But here it is, Romans 8, 28. And we know, believers know, not the world, but those who are in Christ know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now good in that verse does not just refer to good, prosperous things here. This is an eternal perspective. It doesn't guarantee present comfort in this world. But it does guarantee eternal good and eternal comfort. Job understood these principles. Even Aaron, this is an interesting story. Some of you I know have read through Leviticus not too long ago. The story of Aaron and his two sons, the priests, when they were killed for doing the wrong thing. Right? Aaron did not question and say, why did this happen? He knew they had done wrong. But they, he, they alone knew, or he alone knew, that the Lord had willed it. And then Job 19. Let's look at this quickly. Job 19 is where we see this declaration by Job about his Redeemer. Job 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. 
I, I don't know if you've ever caught what I've always looked at. Maybe this is the wrong word. The irony, the irony of what you just read. Job spoke that. Oh, that my words were written. Are they written? We're reading them, aren't we? <laughs> his, his prayer of this time was that how I hope that these words might be written in a book. Printed. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock or lead in the rock forever. How long is the word of God going to stand? Forever. Where has God graven his word? Not just in a printed page, but in, the, in, the, in our hearts. He's, he's graven his word on our heart. All these years later, we're talking about Job and we're reading his words. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. This man understood more about death and the resurrection than some Christian in churches do today. He, he had a greater understanding of what was coming. Think about how much less of the word he has, and yet he had a knowledge of what was coming, coming. He knew there was a Redeemer. How much more accountable are we knowing who the Redeemer specifically is? He just knew he had a Redeemer. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. He understood that even though he, his body would be put in a grave, he knew that his own death and his placing of his body in a grave would never, ever, ever prevent him from one day standing before his Lord at the resurrection. Folks, that's powerful stuff. This man understood that there was a redeemer. Job doesn't try to justify himself or anything that happens to him before the world because he knew that he would one day go stand before the only one who could judge him. And the same judge was the same one who was his redeemer, his deliverer, and his savior. And quickly, this third heading is very quick. The third heading is the praise of God's sovereignty and Job's submission. This is really kind of a summary of the, the other two headings. Verse 21, Job declares that in all things, at all times, God is to be praised. God in all things, at all times, is to be praised. I'm not just supposed to praise God when everything is going right. And by the way, that's really easy. But we're to praise God even in the times when it's not going right. His words are, blessed be the name of the Lord. To be able to praise God equally in the valley of affliction as you do on the mountaintop of joy ought to be the desire of every believer. That's the praise of God's sovereignty we see in Job's submission. Throughout this trial, he learns how to praise God even in the affliction the same way he praised God in his prosperity. Secondly, with regard to the praise of God's sovereignty, Job, probably more clearly than anybody else in Scripture, ascribes total sovereignty to God over all things and to worship even in loss. 
Job ascribed total sovereignty to God over all things and to worship even in loss. A lot of people like to run to chapter 42 and they like to say, yes, but God gave him twice as much. You understand that didn't replace what he lost originally. It's an amazing thing how people just kind of run to a thing and say, yeah, but he gave him more. He still lost 10 children. He still lost everything that he had. He still went through affliction and he still went through trouble. The point about those things being given back to him again was not because God gave him all these things so he'd forget what he had been through. No, it was to teach him that God was totally sovereign in all things. That's why we repeatedly see that phrase, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. He didn't accuse God of being unjust and unfair or acting outside of his authority. And then finally, Job confesses and submits to the glory of God. I'm going to break this up in a couple different phrases. Job confesses and submits to God's glory, right? To the glory of God. Now that sounds wonderful and that is good. We should, every one of us today should say, I'm going to confess God's glory. I'm going to submit to the glory of God. But the second part of this is, He does this never knowing the reason for his sufferings. Do you realize God never tells Job why specifically he allowed Satan to do what he did? He never tells him specifically why. I heard somebody say today that even if we knew the why of many things, and this may not be the most biblical thing you hear all day, but even if we knew the why of everything, it wouldn't solve the problem. So even if I knew why, even if Job sits down with God, so to speak, and God says, all right, Job, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the 10 reasons why I did this. It's not going to solve what Job went through. You see, God had something greater in doing, through, doing all this. He never knew the reason for his suffering, but here's what I, here's what I take away. That Job throughout the book of Job becomes overwhelmed by the greatness of God. Now, sovereignty is one thing. We know, believe God is sovereign. But I think Job is overwhelmed not just with God's sovereignty, but with God's greatness. That there is none who gives counsel to the Lord. There is none that teaches him. That opening him, behold our God, so encapsulates what, who God really is. It's not inspired scripture, but it's a good hymn because it reminds us about the greatness of God. And I've often thought if that hymn had been around during Job's day, that may have been something that would have come to his mind. Behold our God. Job was overwhelmed by the greatness of God. We see in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul makes a statement similar to what Job would say, in everything give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Everything includes loss or gain, sickness, health, success, failure, summer, winter, life, death. Give thanks. 
That verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 goes on and says, because it's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's God's will for us to give thanks for whatever He does. Whatever he does. In the end, Job gained an experiential knowledge of God. And he was thankful that he had the knowledge. Difficult times, difficult passage. Job is a deep book, and we've just scratched the surface of it. But Job was submissive, even in times of suffering at the hands of a sovereign God. Let's conclude our time tonight by singing the hymn on 109. The hymn is entitled, Why Should I Sorrow More? 